people are more willing to let go of their prior work if there's a new regime under which they can do good work, right? So if you're just saying, well, your your stuff is terrible and we're the new breed and we're going to do the good stuff, well, then it's perfectly understandable that there's going to be some resistance. And what happened in genetics was that actually everyone was brought in uh, you know, it was it, those, those large consortia were very welcoming, and and so it wasn't the new breed against the old breed or or us against them. It, it was everybody was sort of brought along in the, in that process, um, which I think was a you know was a good way to to do that. Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana and I'm from the University of Oslo and I'm here with James Heathers from Northeastern University and we are joined by a very special guest, Kevin Mitchell, who is an Associate Professor of Genetics and Neuroscience at Trinity College Dublin and his research is aimed at understanding the genetic program, specifying the wiring of the brain and its relevance to variation in human faculties. And he's also the author of Innate, a book which we recently recommended on the show. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much. My pleasure. Now, I want to jump straight in and talk about uh, the serotonin transporter gene 5-HTTLPR, whose uh, variation has been linked to depression since the early 90s and uh, the topic of a critical uh, Slate Start Codex article that we'll link to. Can you walk us through this story, Kevin, and just more specifically this idea that, uh, that we can link specific genes to personality traits or to psychiatric illnesses? Sure, yeah. I mean, it's an interesting case study of, um, I guess, some flaws in the scientific method that we're coming to recognize. But the basic idea that, that, um, you know, genetic variation affects our psychology is very firmly established. We know that from all kinds of studies, twin studies, family studies, adoption studies, they all show the same thing, that a lot of the differences between people in psychological traits, however you measure them, whether they're, you know, it's a personality questionnaire or it's an IQ test or actual behavioral outcomes, um, a lot of that variation is down to genetic differences. And basically, uh, it comes down to the fact that people resemble their relatives Physically, we're all used to that, but they resemble them psychologically as well. And ultimately, that that comes down, I think, to the way that the brain is wired. So there's a genetic program for making a human brain generally, and we all have slightly different versions of that, just in the same way we have slightly different versions for of the program for making a human face. And so we all have a, an idiosyncratic face, uh, and the same thing is, is true for the structure of our brains. <laughs> And that manifests as differences in how the brain functions that we recognize as, as psychological differences. So there's a clear genetic basis for a lot of our um, innate psychological traits. Now, what that doesn't tell you is which genes are involved. So in the um, 2000s, there was an attempt to try and figure out what those genes might be. And it started with what were educated guesses. So people knew, for example, that pathways like the serotonin pathway and the dopamine pathway, they modulate behavioral states and they motivate behavior and so on. And the idea was that maybe variation in those pathways leads to differences in behavioral traits between people. And secondly, that maybe the variation in the way those neural pathways work is due to genetic differences in genes like uh, encoding proteins like a serotonin transporter or serotonin 
receptors or enzymes that make those things and so on. And in fact, as far as enzymes go, um, the, the monoamine oxidase A gene, which is involved in breakdown of, of serotonin, it's known that there are very severe mutations in that gene that cause behavioral disturbances. And it's associated with extreme violence and aggression and impulsivity and so on, but they're extremely rare in the population. Um, but what people did was try and look to see if there was common variation. So in, in all of our genomes, if you scan across the genome, most of us would be, you know, base by base, we'd be 99.9% .9 identical. But every once in a while, you come to a to a piece of DNA that's different between people. And some of those differences are extraordinarily rare. Everybody in the population has a, a T or an A at that position, and maybe you know a few people have a different mutation. But some of them are common. They, they happened a long time ago. They spread throughout the population. So maybe 60% have an A or 40% have a T. Okay, So um, there's a few particular mutations that people looked at, and one of them was in this serotonin transporter gene. Now, it's a funny mutation because it's actually a, a piece of DNA that is expanded in some people. It's a sort of a repeated element, and it can have more repeats in some people than others. And if it's a bit longer, that affects how much of the protein you make. So basically, there's two versions in the population. Um, there's the version that where you make a lot of the protein and the version where you make a bit less. And so there was a perfectly valid hypothesis to test, maybe that difference is associated with differences in behavior or uh, psychological traits. So the test is very simple. Uh, you look at people with the long version uh, and see what their level is for the trait and the same for the short version and see if there's any difference. And so people did that and they started with fairly small samples of people and reports came out in the literature of very big effects. So there were huge differences in psychological traits, in anxiety, in rates of depression, um, a few other things between people with the long version and the short version of this gene. And what sort of sample sizes are we talking here? Well, originally? they were, you know, sort of around 30 people, 30, 40 people, 30? something like Yeah, okay. in, the, in the tens. Yeah, in, in the, the tens. tens. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so this led to a lot of excitement. It looked really interesting. And there was a ton of follow-up work that was done. So lots more studies came out showing, yeah, we also found something like that. Um, and people then started to look, for example, to see, okay, what's the neurobiological basis for that? Say there's an increase in anxiety. Well, then you can do an fMRI experiment. And this was with, you know, tens yeah, n equal 10, not even 30 necessarily, um, where they would show people fearful faces and see how their amygdala lights up and see if there's a difference in activity. So there's a lot of phenotypes that you can look at with these um, with these particular, any well, any genetic variants that you want, basically, as long as you can put people in two groups, you can see if there's a, a difference. So there's a massive literature. It's literally over a thousand papers, I think, that followed up this um this study that suggested that the serotonin transporter variation was affected with um, associated with anxiety or depression, and there was a follow-up literature that was a bit more subtle, where some people started to not find those associations, but they combined that with a, a looking at the life experiences that people had had, and they said, okay, the serotonin transporter by itself is not a risk factor, but when it's combined with, say, childhood abuse, then the people who have the, the risk gene, risk version, and abuse, then they show higher depression. Mm. So it was a, a gene by environment 
correlation. Um, and the numbers there were, you know, a sample of about a thousand people. Um, so there's this massive literature, um, and there's literature also on common variants in the MAOA gene, which are very different from the rare mutations. These are, are, again, subtle ones that affect the expression just a little bit in a gene called BDNF, or brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And there was a couple others, some of the dopamine transporter, there's a few other sort of what are called candidate genes. So people thought, based on the biology, maybe this is one that's a good candidate to look at, accumulated some, some, some evidence. Now, the problem is that the lack of replication of some of those things started to also accumulate. And people started to get, I think, a little bit suspicious of it. And the approach that people were taking was actually superseded by what's called a genome-wide association study. So rather than taking one candidate and looking at some variants in it and looking for ones that might be associated with a trait, you look across the entire genome at about 500,000 different positions that have one of these common vari variants where some of us have one version, some of us have another. So it's, it's straight up epidemiology, basically. You think, here's a, here's a risk factor, that, or here's a factor that I think might be associated with trait X, intelligence, depression, anxiety, whatever it is. And you scan across all of those 500,000 um, positions and see is either of the versions at a different frequency in people with depression versus without, or people with high intelligence versus low. Now, statistically, what you have to do is do a, a huge correction for multiple tests. So mm. if you're doing your statistics statistics to see, to see, should I be surprised at finding this many associations? Well, you've just done 500,000 tests. So if you don't correct for having done that, of course, you're going to find some that are significant at the one in 20 typical level p less than 0 0.05 so you, you you correct for all those tests and people have developed very very rigorous ways of, of doing this and they do it in huge samples not tens or hundreds but hundreds of thousands of people now at this stage and and this is what i find uh sorry go on yeah well so 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 the outcome basically of that is that the serotonin transporter gene and the MAOA and BDNF, they don't come out. They don't pop out of these. And so the nice thing about GWAS or genome-wide association studies is they don't have a hypothesis. And that may sound weird, but they're not, you know, in one sense, you could say it's good to have a hypothesis, but in this case, they're unbiased and they report all the results. So whether they're negative or positive, all the results get reported. Plus they have huge samples and a replication sample built in. And what that means is you're protected much, much more against spurious findings or false positives. Whereas the initial design of the studies that were doing candidate gene studies, um, they were small samples. So there was a lot of statistical fluctuation. You could find something just by chance. People often looked at a lot of different traits or a lot of different variants in the same gene and didn't correct for doing multiple tests. So they, they took it they did it as if each one was independent, but really, you know, if you test a load of things, you're, you're more likely to find something by chance. Um, and then secondly, there was probably, and in fact, it's pretty clear that there was huge publication bias. So what that means, I might do an experiment. I've got 30 people. I do a test. It's either, you know, it's in, a, in a scanner or it's just with a behavioral thing. 
and I find something, and that's great. I found something. Here's my significance, my, my P less than 0.05. That's my magic uh, admission key to publication in a, <laughs> in a journal. That's what the editors wanted to see. It's what the reviewers wanted to see. And so those ones got published, whereas the ones where I didn't see anything, that's not a result. It's really hard for a negative result to be statistically strong enough to think, actually, you know that warrants publication, and people are were just weren't as interested in it. So unfortunately, the literature, the the whole candidate gene literature, and there's thousands and thousands of articles published over at least a decade, and they continue, um, is bollocks. <laughs> and I hate to say it like that, but unfortunately, the the message is just not getting across that that we've learned. I mean, it was all done in good faith, and I and I don't mean to to slam anyone who was engaged in that. But mm. um, the reason I'm saying it like that is because we know better now. We should know better now how to do this. Um, yet you still see some of these things coming out. You still see papers published on the serotonin transporter gene and and so on um, with this same variant, and they're they're just not um, they're just not credible anymore. And and we really have moved on, I think. And you know, it's part of the whole um, replication crisis and we see it for in many different areas in psychology and neuroscience um you know we talk about it a lot um but things are getting better we're doing registered reports we're thinking mm. about bigger studies we're, we you know we're aware of p hacking and hypothesizing after the results are known and publication bias and we can protect ourselves against them so that we don't fool ourselves and you know it, it, it's easy to fool yourself so um so yeah that's sort of the summary of of the story there and where that ended. God now, damn. Thing, Kevin, you can come back uh, every week. I've never done less work in my life. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, that, that's an amazing summary. Now, one thing that we've, we've even spoken about in the show before is we've always been fascinated in that in within genetics, it seems that with a lot of researchers, they've figured out how to clean house. They know that in order to perform GWAS, they need big samples in order to actually have enough power to actually do these multiple comparisons. But yet, we, we, we're still having the same problem within psychology. From someone who's actually been in the field, how did this process happen? How did you get people to, to, to bump heads going, okay, we need to work together in order to actually get these sample yeah. sizes? And how can psychology learn from what's been happening in genetics? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, sh I should say I've been, you know, I've been lucky to collaborate with a lot of people who are, who are in, you know, psychiatric genetics, for example, and uh, other areas. And I've done a little bit of that myself, but I, I, I wouldn't say that I was, you know, in the, in the field at the time that this was happening. Um, but I know from the people who were there that it took a lot of effort. I mean, it took, first of all, you know, recognition, uh, by people and admission that what they had been doing was wrong. That's not an easy, that's not an easy thing to do to yeah. say, look, we have this whole that body of work, you know, that collectively we've all staked our, our careers on. And actually it's not trustworthy. That's a big, big step. Um, secondly, the funders realized that and the mm. funders started to drive a lot of this discussion. And they, they were, they, they stopped being willing to fund, um, the small studies. There were some technical things that happened that made it possible to do large-scale studies across many different regions and it had to do with the standardization of the technology so there are chips that you use to genotype people and they could be done exactly the same way in different places so that gets a little more difficult when you're talking about behavioral assays especially when you're talking about fmri you got different scanners different routines and so on 
but uh, but people are starting to do that. They're starting to realize that actually you need to make these you know symposia. It's the only way to connect and not collect enough samples. Um, is, is to connect those people. And of course, that's especially true if you're studying rare conditions where uh, it's not normative, you know, psychology or neuroscience you're looking at. It's, it's people with a condition and you have to uh, collect them clinically. There's whole issues around how people are ascertained and so on. Um, but ultimately, it came down to a lot of, you know, discussion and debate around how credit is, is given. So if you're a member of a consortium and you're one of 100 authors or 200 authors on a GWAS paper, um, you know, it used to be that people thought that that was ridiculous. They would just have dismissed that as not an important contribution if you're one of 200. Uh, but that changed, actually. And, and that was a cultural change in the field. It was a cultural change in you know, in universities and hospitals, people coming up for promotion and they have contributed to these things and people started to recognize that's a valuable contribution. It's more valuable to make that contribution to a collective effort than to do, you know, your own cottage industry sort of research over here where you're just generating noise actually oh, yeah. um, so there was a there was a bunch of of cultural changes that had to happen there was some of the technological change i think that that allowed it to happen um and and then there was some some imperatives and incentives from the funders and the journals as well that um that i think helped to drive that cultural shift in in genetics we're starting to see it in in neuroscience and psychology can I ask you a GWAS specific question that's related to that? Sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, I've gotten the impression uh, in the last week or so thinking about this because it's, I mean, it's a very interesting paper. It's written up in the Atlantic. Um, I had that blog post. So an awful lot of chat for something that's in the sort of computational <laughs> genetics kind of area, <laughs> much more discussion yeah. than normal. Um, yeah. When did people at the kind of gnarlier, more computationally intensive, well-informed level start to lose faith in candidate gene studies? I mean, if you're um, – I mean, GWAS is about 12 years old or something, thereabouts, yeah, yeah. something that's successful. So it, it happened, I think, um, gradually during that transition from candidate gene studies to GWAS. And actually, it's an interesting cultural sociological thing mm. in that – uh, people often have faith in the things that they can do at the time. And when something better comes along, they have faith in that. And they then look back uh, on what they had been doing with a little bit uh, less less faith. So, um, I mean, it, it's... I don't want to to sort of um, try to divine the motives of, of people in the field, but uh, there is a degree of motivated reasoning that goes into these things when people, you know, they, they say, look, okay, candidate gene studies, well, they're not the best. They have some problems, but they're all we can do. I only can get these 200 people or I only can get these 50 people. You know, what am I supposed to do? I only have enough money for this many genotyping things. So what am I supposed to do? Nothing. And, and I think, I mean, I've heard the same thing from people in psychology, actually, when I've made the argument now that psychology should learn from the lessons that genetics painfully went through. Um, and people, and, 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 you know, what I was recommending was doing larger, larger studies, having replication samples if you're just looking for an effect, which a lot of, of psychological studies are. Um, and making large consortia and people were saying, well, I can't do that. I only have, you know, one graduate student and enough funds to do this. So I have to still be able to do something. And actually my argument is no, that's, 
that's worse than doing nothing. You're just polluting yeah. the literature with with, with spurious <laughs> noise. Um, so I don't know. It was a so the, anyway in, in genetics, it wasn't like a sudden epiphany. It was a gradual um, change, and and it, it it happened along with the provision of resources to do larger studies and the formation of these consortia that people could get into and so on. So it was a it was a gradual thing. It wasn't um I don't know, a sudden burst of altruism or or uh this this, this recognition <laughs> of the you know when the, does the, the science ever s- get those, eh? Bloody hell. Yeah. Um yeah. Uh, so it's so it's it's like it's uh it seems like there's a lot of changes in parallel that the, the technological landscape of what's possible um, the recognition of the, the the fact that things are underpowered and are, are problematic on a level that everyone should probably understand by now, regardless of the mechanism by which the research is done. Um, yeah. Do you think there was a period where there were kind of holdouts where people did the research longer than was strictly necessary? Or was a, yeah. like had the evidence base that was a, like available to say that it was a good idea? Yes, and I think there still are. Uh, there's still some people still, you know, ho- holding on to these um, things. And of course, you know, they would say, well, look, you know, here's a meta-analysis. Maybe not all of the studies show this effect, but here's a meta-analysis of the published literature that shows this effect is, is, is you know, is, is consistent. Even if the GWAS didn't pick it up and they could say, well, you're, you know, you're phenotyping it differently. What you have to do is look at amygdala activation or you have to look at this uh, scale of anxiety. You can't just ask one question or, you know, whatever. Um, and so, you know, there was some potential validity um, to that, but ultimately those those arguments don't hold up. And I think the meta-analysis one in particular doesn't hold up because if you're just meta-analyzing just the results that you see and not the ones that didn't get published because they were negative, then yeah, of course you're, you're, you're just meta-sampling publication bias. Um, so <laughs> yeah. it's not a surprise that, that those kinds of things... Um, show up as positive and I don't take that as as strong evidence of it being real. And then people like Dan start fighting about how you're supposed to detect publication bias in meta-analysis and bore the piss out of everyone else. Um, But debates like like that take years. You you end up with uh, someone publishes a computational technique or how do we do that? We go deeper in the rabbit hole. Someone has to build a package. Before you know it, five to ten years have passed before you get to say we get to put a definitive pin in the back end of this kind of thread of ideas. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean there's something else like this. A great deal of time and money. Yeah, I agree. And and the thing is that, you know, you can have all these methodological um arguments and discussions and new new methodological approaches and so on and new statistics, but uh, that doesn't have to have to happen in a vacuum. And in, in this case, um the biology and the evolutionary rationale was was not really analyzed to the extent that it could have been because actually um if you have a genetic variant and it causes some big effect, some big psychological effect, usually it's bad, right? You know, most mm. most things that you you know we, we've got a, a finely crafted genome. Evolution has been at it for well <laughs> billions of years, you know, in in mammals and so on, millions in primates, hundreds of thousands in in, in modern humans even, um, and it's pretty finely crafted. So if you go in there and mess with it, with random mutations, you're just much more likely to make it worse, not better. Now, as a result of that, when a mutation arises, if it has a big effect, it's probably going to be rapidly selected against. 
And what that means is it's not going to become common in the population. It's going to be rare. And we know that. Rare mutations have the biggest effects. Common ones have tiny effects because if they had big effects, they wouldn't be common. So if a, a mutation has lasted enough, it's persisted in the population and spread through the population, most of the time it's doing hardly anything individually. Now, that doesn't mean the common variants don't affect our psychology. They can do collectively. Each of them is so small that natural selection barely sees it, but collectively they can, they can therefore accumulate actually, and then they can act in concert to affect thing, things like, you know, intelligence or personality traits or so on to a certain extent. So looking back at the effect size that was claimed for these common variants, like in the serotonin transporter, I mean, partly in, in, in retrospect and in hindsight, um, they're implausibly large now. That that's, they, they just don't make sense in an evolutionary perspective that those things would exist. And in fact, the GWAS, which take an unbiased view and look across the whole genome, the, the major finding, you know, one of the major findings from GWAS is that there are no common variants of big effect. Yeah, that is the actually. If there's any take-home message from GWAS, it's that there are no common variants of of big effect, and that it's not just that they haven't been found. The GWAS would have found them very definitively. The power is there; they're the, they would be the easiest ones to find. So, so, so biologically, um, you know what that means is we're getting a different view of how genetics influences our traits. So it's not the case that there's just a standing pool of genetic variation in the population that gets shuffled around. We all have a we're all dealt a hand from the same deck. That's not quite right. And instead you have a, a background of common variants and they may exist in, in the population. They differ between large populations depending on ethnicity and ancestry. But then each of us also has a lot of rare mutations, ones that came directly from our parents or even in the generation of the egg and sperm that made us that our parents didn't even carry. So brand new ones. Um, and then, you know, slightly rarer ones that came from our grandparents and, and then slightly further back. Those ones tend to have bigger effects. So, and they're much more individual. So there's a much more dynamic spectrum of genetic variation that affects our traits. It has some implications for um, using what are called polygenic scores which are profiles of common genetic vari variation to make predictions about people's psychological traits. Because if you don't sample the rare ones, you're missing out a huge element of the genetic um, causation of, of these traits. Mm, yeah, I mean, that, that's a lot of the work that we're doing. I mean, my, my, re my research specifically, uh, I don't do that much of work with genetics, but a lot of my colleagues are part of these consortia. And, yes. uh, and they were part of these uh, particularly schizophrenia and bipolar and published this uh, 108 loci associated mm -hmm. with schizophrenia. These things are polygenic. There's not, yes. uh, there's not a schizophrenia gene or a, or a depression gene. And I, I think uh, we, we'll come back to your book a little bit later. But um, one thing which was um, uh, which came out was this idea that um, stuff like – I mean, autism is, is considered a, a developmental disorder. Yes. Um, traditionally, though, schizophrenia isn't. But then – one thing which was which, which came out of your book is, well, no, all these genes that are associated, or many of the genes that are associated with schizophrenia tend to be developmental genes or genes yes. that are involved in neural development rather than being, say, social cognition genes. Yeah, per se. absolutely. Yeah. And, I, and, and actually, I don't think 
there is necessarily such a thing as a social cognition gene, although you might argue for oxytocin and oxytocin receptor that that pathway, and I know you probably would. Um, <laughs> but um, basically, I think you know the way I think of that relationship between genes and psychological traits is much more indirect, much more non-specific, and not not modular in in that kind of a way. And so. Um, Really, what you have to think about when you're talking about genes is actually genetic variants. So it's mm. not that it, it, when we say we, we use a shorthand, a gene for intelligence. What we mean is a genetic variant or a mutation that affects intelligence. Now that's a very non-specific kind of a an effect, possibly. Uh, and in fact, I think for for intelligence, most of the effects are simply on how the brain develops. And collectively, intelligence is kind of an index of well, for want of a better way of putting it, how well your brain is put together. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't reflect some very, very specific circuits in the brain or some very, very specific neurotransmitter pathways or, um, you know, or the metabolism of the brain. It's just a developmental outcome um, and we can index it. And so my feeling is that a lot of the things that we think of as psychological traits, like social cognition, for example, social cognition, like any other psychological trait, is going to be partly heritable. Some of the variation is due to genetic differences. We could do GWAS for it and, and other, you know, we could find rare mutations that affect it and so on. But I wouldn't call those social cognition genes. I would call those genetic variants that affect social cognition. Mm. And the thing is that collectively, you, you could look at those as a set and say, okay, here's the set that explains the heritability of this trait. But each of them individually might also affect trait A or trait B or trait C or trait D. So each individual variant probably affects multiple things. If you view it from the perspective of one trait at a time, then you, you, you focus your spotlight only on the common effects on, say, social cognition. It makes it look more modular, the relationship between the genes and the traits, than it actually is. But it's a, that's a sort of a statistical illusion of the perspective that you approach it from. Um, so I think that a lot of the relationship between genes and traits is mediated by how our neural circuits develop and how they're wired. And then that manifests as a difference in how they work that we perceive as a difference in, in behavior. But that's a long chain, a very indirect um, series of, of, of effects that ultimately um, mediate that relationship. Right. Yeah. That's what one of those uh, ideas that makes perfect sense in sequence. And then I start to think of a how would you functionally address those ideas and my brain slowly starts to crawl out of my ear and run across the corridor? Um, how, yeah, how do you even it, start? It's a pain, right? You know, it's, it's like the worst <laughs> yes. possible answer. It's all indirect. It's all really nonspecific. Uh, it's all really polygenic. Um, it's, 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 it's dismal, right? You know, as, a, uh, um, as an experimental um, biologist, it makes it really hard to get a handle on, um, on these things. But, you know, nature is under no obligation to make things simple for us. And she hasn't. Yeah, ab ab absolutely. It's, it's, it's a mess. Can I, um, can I, test, now, out, can I test out an sorry, assumption on yeah. you right quick? Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm kind of interested in how fields progress structurally over time. And, and one of mm. my personal bugbears is we might say how early epidemiology kind of wrecked it for everyone else because when you when you start off with things like uh, smoking, 
serious neuroendocrine disruptors, uh, different industrial chemicals, um, where you're not, you don't, you don't have to talk about an odds ratio. You just go look at that pile of dead people. Um, yeah. here's, here's, here's our, um, here's our effect size. Um, how, how do you, how do you feel about that? Um, when, when you're past those early stage kind of spaces, in any individual field of endeavor, you end up making the assumption that you're going to proceed on that basis and going to continue to find things that are that straightforward. Now, yeah. I have the, I have some half-assed, not particularly educated sense that something like that's happening in genetics in general, that that is something that's happened because there are obviously some point mutations, conditions, etc., where there are really obvious outcomes that happen. Yeah. Um, you can find those mutations because you, you say, well, there's one in 150,000 people and they get, like, uh, everything in their chest is the other way around or they live up mm -hmm. until 18, they never grow any bones and then they die. And uh, I hope neither of those conditions exist. Um, but actually, the when first you, one when you do When you do that, you have the assumptive basis that you're looking for you're, you're you're looking for not a, a like a needle in a haystack, or as as you seem to think it's like some kind of stacked fractal haystack, which is terrifying. Yeah. But it's more sort of like <laughs> there's a mop handle sticking out of the side, and you just go, oh yeah, look, there it is. Um, people who yeah. smoke two packs a day are six and a half times more likely to die. We open them up; their lungs are full of tar. Mechanism yeah. effect size. How are you doing? Um, and then yeah. 40 years later, you end up running that into what kind of potato has the best sort of resistant starch? Let's try doing that with a, a sample of 10,000 people. I've just talked to Greg. Yeah, so, uh, to fuck, that made uh, sense. No, uh, it did. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think you're oh, absolutely good. right that, that uh, genetics mirrored what happened in epidemiology in the sense that we were used to working with huge effect sizes, right? So most of, of, of the history of genetics, um, well, well, one half of it, um, dealt with what we call Mendelian conditions or yeah. uh, traits. So really simple things. They're affected by one gene or one mutation, something like cystic fibrosis. You know, it's caused by a mutation in a single gene. Everyone who gets that mutation develops the, the condition. Now, uh, and there's tons of other, you know, traits that, that all the sort of classic traits in experimental animals and coat color and, and things. And of course, you know, back to Mendel's peas, yellow or green, wrinkled or, or smooth shells, all of those things. Um, so there was that arm of genetics and a lot of genetic, um, human genetics was based around that because it was finding those genes that, uh, that cause Huntington's disease, that cause retinitis pigmentosa and so on, um, or inherited deafness, intellectual disability. And there were tons and tons of success stories. Now, at the same time, there's another arm of genetics historically, which has come from animal breeding and plant breeding. And there people realized that there's traits that you can look at in animals, say how much meat they have or how much milk they produce or something like that that are clearly not inherited uh, according to a single gene because you can just look, you, you can breed them and you can see, well, that's not how it works. Um, they're continuous or quantitative traits. So you, it's not A or B, it's how much A, right? So how much milk do you make? Um, how big is the animal? Whatever. So people realized that at a certain point, the, 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 these two arms, they, they looked quite um, incompatible with each other. People realize at a certain point that actually you could get continuous variation if you have multiple independent Mendelian uh, 
genes acting at the same time on the same trait. So even if you get, you know, if you put five of them together where you've got two versions, a, a more milk and a less milk version, um, and you put five of them together, then across the population, you'll get a kind of a normal distribution, a quantitative trait out of it. So, so people started to build models in animal breeding where they could, they could see how heritable is a trait. If I breed these animals, if I select them, you know, at this extreme level, what's the next generation going to be like? And so on. Those were statistical models. They were extremely um, successful. And what happened with genome-wide association studies is those two fields came together. People started to realize there's complex traits in humans, and there's disorders that kind of aggregate in families, but they don't segregate in a clear way like cystic fibrosis does. It's not that some people have it and some people don't, and I can tell it's on this chromosome or that. It's that kind of, you know, your risk is increased, say schizophrenia is increased if your relatives have it. But it's, it's not a cut and dried kind of a thing. And people started to think, well, maybe those complex disorders have underlying them this same kind of polygenic basis. They, they act like a quantitative trait, but there's a sort of a threshold, a burden of, of risk alleles over which, um, you get the disease. Does that make sense? Uh, Kevin, how did you get so good at explaining stuff? <laughs> well, I, I don't practice, I guess. Um, Okay, but so if that was the that was where um, the the st statistical approach um, uh, approaches that were pretty sophisticated from animal breeding and so on started to then be applied to human diseases. Now, right. when they started to do that, the the early papers that started to look at say schizophrenia were thinking, well, okay, we know it's not one gene because they had done what's called linkage studies, the kind of things that had found the Huntington's gene and so on, and they didn't come up with anything. So they knew it wasn't one gene, uh, but they thought, well, maybe it's five, you know, maybe it's 10, maybe there's 10 variations around the, the genome that contribute. And so they do some, some, you know, GWAS on a certain scale, big enough to have detected them if they had the effect sizes they would have had to have had if there were only 10 and they didn't find anything. And then they thought, okay, well, maybe there's more than 10. So we need a bigger sample size and so on and so on. And eventually you got to the sample sizes of what Dan was talking about earlier. You know, those were studies with 30,000 people or more um, that that finally hit the threshold where you could you could detect individual effects that are quite small. And, and the realization then is that actually it's probably a thousand or more genetic variants that are contributing the the component of the heritability that that is explained by common variation and then you've got another chunk probably another half of the genetic variant variants that's attributed to rare mutations which we haven't even you know well there's a few that we know about but um but that becomes even more difficult you need even bigger sample sizes to find those because they're those are so idiosyncratic it's really rare to find two people with the same one so yeah, there's been a gradual change, um, and the interesting thing, I guess, in terms of the sociology, is that the early papers had some theory behind them that completely justified the idea that there were a dozen, you know, ten or a dozen um, allele um, genes inv in involved, right? So right. there was a, a there was an underlying theory that fit in us in a way with the current technology and the current ability to do experiments to test that. So it was almost like, look, there's no point having a theory that there's a thousand things because we can't test that. So let's just go with the theory that there's this much. But it, it, but interestingly, it wasn't portrayed like that. It was the theory, here's the theory, and we really believe this, and let's let's do the test. Uh, and then the theory, this theory shifts. 
Now, that's perfectly appropriate that you get new results, that the theory shifts. But sometimes the theory shifts as a new technology comes online, comes available. Right. Uh, and you can do an experiment that your previous theory, uh, you, you know, wouldn't have, or, or that your previous technology wouldn't have allowed you to, to, to do, and that can test a new theory. And then the new theory is suddenly the new thing. So there's a, there is some interesting, I wouldn't call it revisionist, but it's, uh, it's definitely a move where the theory and the, and the tech technology sort of move along in these little stutter steps um, of a field over time. Right. So when, when, when things like that screw up over time, I, I find that the reasoning on why they screw up and just the angle of how is generally split into two camps. And one is uh, motivated reasoning and kind of uh, fiefdom protection. And the other is mm. basically the limits of the imagination that people have that are reflected in how they understand what's possible to do which is, as you say, built out of the tools that are involved. So it sounds like you're squarely in camp two rather than well, sort of look, some kind uh, of scientific camp, protectionism. Uh, no, that, that absolutely happens as well. And, and oh, right. um you know, we see that all over. You see that in you see that in psychology. We saw it in genetics, it still happens a little bit. Um but yeah, you know what? I I people are more willing to let go of their prior um prior work if there's a new regime under which they can do good work right so if you're just saying oh, well, yeah. your totally. your your stuff is terrible and we're the new breed and we're going to do the good stuff well then it's perfectly understandable that there's going to be some resistance and what happened in genetics was that actually everyone was brought in uh you know it was it, those, those large consortia were very welcoming and and so it wasn't um it wasn't it wasn't the new breed against the old breed or or us against them it, it was everybody was sort of brought along in the, in that process um which i think was a you know was a good way to to do that i think it's an excellent point and uh that's been mirrored a lot in these current uh debates about p values and a lot of people are saying let's ban p values but they're not actually no. they're not actually proposing an alternative to the p value uh, yeah, so it's, I'm, yeah, it's it's, I'm, it's a huge thing. But I'm we're so annoyed, Dan. But my okay. proposal of whoever yells the loudest was robustly voted down by both sides. But James, you just you just needed to get a hundred authors and get more authors than the other two papers, and you would have been fine. I don't know. The, the trick people. is to have more more authors than subjects. That's yeah, the, that's the key thing. <laughs> <laughs> that might be a bit hard in the old genetics. Oh man, uh, we will be oh, back, Dan. Can we very, take a break? I need soon. a drink. One question we often get from listeners is how they can support the show, and we have two ways. The first is financially via Patreon, and uh, we have two support tiers. The first one is a dollar a month, and with that, you get the Everything Hurts newsletter, access to behind-the-scenes photos and videos, and that warm feeling that you are supporting the show. Uh, if you join our $5 Professor Fancy Pants tier, you get access to all those things. And in addition to that, uh, an exclusive mini episode, which is released every single month. Our last episode was on ResearchGate, and that was quite popular. So if you sign up, you get access to all the bonus episodes moving forward, but also the back catalog of bonus episodes. The second way you can, you can support the show is via social media. We would love it if you could post about the show on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, on Snapchat, whatever platform you are using. Now, let's get back to the show.
Welcome back to Everything Hurts. Today we are speaking with uh, with Kevin Mitchell, and you can find him on Twitter. Um, and his handle is Wiring the Brain, which is all one word. And as we mentioned before, he is the author of a book that came out late last year. And Nate, and for the first time, uh, Everything Hurts is having a giveaway. And this is and thanks it's not going to be uh, the last time. Tell them, Daniel. Yeah. It's going to be the first of, of, of many giveaways that we're going to have. And this is actually supported by our, our generous Patreon supporters. And we want to give back. And we're going to give back. And, um, and we're going to be giving away three copies of Kevin's book. And in order to, to win this, we're going to be running a little competition. And you need to tweet a photo of where you listen to Hertz. We get uh, a lot of people who are telling us, oh, yeah, I'll, yeah I'll ride, my, ride my bike to work. Or I'm doing this while I'm coding. Or... Or, or doing all, all kinds of stuff. But we want to see it. We want to see where you're listening to Hertz. And the best three photos that we get, uh, wherever you are in the world, we're going to send you a copy of, uh, of Kevin's book. So uh, get, get get amongst it. Yeah, also bear in mind that considering I have allegedly half of the opinion on what constitutes best, that has a very significant Venn diagram crossover with funniest. So yeah. if you if you <laughs> listen in the shower while fighting an inflatable man, that's that's ideal. Um, anyone who's upside down, squarely appreciated. Uh, try not to set yourselves on fire. We assume no legal responsibility for anything you do uh, entering into this particular competition. Funniest now, entry is definitely winning. It will definitely, <laughs> you'll definitely have a high <laughs> chance. <laughs> so yes, we're going to have that competition out there. Uh, so uh, Kevin, now I saw a great, uh, a great quote on Twitter a, a few days ago, which really resonated with me as a, as a new parent. And it's uh, it goes like this: When you have one kid, you believe in nurture. When you have two kids, you believe in nature. And when you have a third, you believe in birth control. And I. <laughs> Yeah, that was I from uh, that was from Laura Hercher, I think that was a great one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and this, um, I, I think that that speaks a little bit to, to to your book. And I think one of the things that I got out of it personally when reading it is is this idea that um, this innate differences in in psychological traits largely come from two sources. One of them is is, is a source that we sort of most of us recognise, which is genetic differences in how the brain is programmed. But the other yeah. source is the, are these random variations in how this program is, is played out. And, and you use a great example of you can't bake the same cake twice. You can put yes. all the, the exact same ingredients, the exact same temperature, the exact make and model, but you're not going to get the same cake. Can you walk yeah. us a, a bit through this idea of how these, these idea of random variations and how, and how these affect? Uh, yeah. Uh, um, so, it it's really an overlooked source of variation. When we t tend to think what's making people different, it's nature and nurture, and people equate that to genes and environment. So, if we see that, for example, the heritability of a trait like intelligence is, say, 60%, that is 60% of the variation is due to genetic differences, then people automatically assume the other 40% must be due to something in the environment. Um, and that's unfortunate because it overlooks this third source of variation, which is just how the developmental program plays out. So in the, the genome encodes a program to make a human being, and your genome encodes a, a program to make a human being like you, but not not you exactly you, right? If you had a twin, that person wouldn't be you. They'd be like you. They'd look like you. They'd act somewhat like you, but they wouldn't be exactly like you. Um, and the reason for that is simply that the genome doesn't encode the outcome. 
the genome encodes some biochemical rules. All it's got is DNA, right? So it's got DNA, it makes some proteins, it's got other bits of DNA that those proteins bind to that determine how much this gene made is how much of that protein's made and so on. Um, it, you know, when, when, when cells are, are, differentiating from each other they turn some genes on they turn some genes off they're making some of these proteins a b and c and so on but the proteins just go off and jitter around in the cell they're subject to thermal fluctuations they're subject to noise in a in a you know an engineering sense of the word um so the the rules that the genome puts in place are enough to basically give the outcome within a certain range but there's a lot of variation that happens that is just intrinsic to development. Every time you run the program, you're not going to get the same outcome. And you can see that when you look, for example, at, at twins, or you look at the structure of their faces, for example. You can see, okay, well, these are, we had two runs of the program, and those people are very similar. So genetics clearly is important in determining facial morphology, but they're not exactly the same. So something else is is um, is at play there. And, and that something else in that case is developmental variation. Now, sometimes people think uh, when I'm saying something like that, that actually it's just kind of a cop-out. It really is a word that I used to disguise the fact that, I, that I'm ignorant about what the environmental factors are. There must be something different outside the embryo that made it develop one way or another. And of course, there can be, but we also can see the effects of this developmental noise within an embryo. So for example, each of us um, the genome ran that program twice on the two sides of our body. So actually, after a certain point of embryogenesis, the development happens almost independently. And, and amazingly, we end up with, you know, arms about the same length and legs about the same length and a reasonably symmetrical face. But actually, if you take a selfie of your face and you split it down the middle and, and you make a mirror image of the left side and the right side, what you'll find is that those two look like two slightly different people. Excellent example in the book of uh, Barack Obama. That yeah. you say to me, like, oh, this is a this is a good looking symmetrical man, but yes. then when you actually do the split, you can see uh, there's uh, there's there's big differences there. Yeah, absolutely. And so, so that is you know within a single organism, you've got you've got variation on the, on the two sides, but we can also see that within the brain and brain structure. So if you look at the brains of twins, they're monozygotic twins or identical twins. They're very very similar to each other in many areas of the brain. If you measure, say, cortical thickness across the whole brain, but there's areas where they're where they're less similar. So, um, literally in the structure of the brain, you you can see that um, happening, and that's true very early on. It's not necessarily that that this is the impact of a life uh, of a, you know lifelong experience, um, it, because you you can see it in in um, you know in early on in in twins, but also if you look at you know. The connections within the brain. If you look at, you know, down even in, in fruit flies, for example. So I did my my graduate work in fruit flies, and I was one thing I was looking at was how motor nerves are guided out to the muscles in the body wall of the fruit fly. Now, because a fruit fly is segmented, you have multiple way multiple um, instances of the same event happening. So we got one motor neuron that we could find in the in the nerve cord of the fly, and in each segment, that one motor neuron projects out to this one muscle. Now, most of the time, it does that with 100% accuracy. So every segment has it perfectly fine. But you can make mutations. So if you start to degrade the genetic program, you reduce the robustness of it, and you can reduce the probability of that happening to, say, 70% or 50% or 30%. 
effectively, in each case, it's probabilistic. You can change the probability, but whether it happens or not is down to chance, actually, once, once it's a probabilistic thing. And so there's a bunch of things where you can see that anatomically, um, where it's clear this is all within the same organism. There's nothing from outside that. It's just the outcome of a probabilistic event. Now, most of the time, you would think um, that's going to just add a little bit of noise, right? It's going to widen the the quantitative variation in, you know, how thick this part of the cortex is, or something like that. But actually, because of the self-organizing nature of brain development, it's very it has a lot of non-linearities in it. And what that means is that uh, small changes at one point, because the next step is contingent on the first one having happened properly small changes can propagate through uh, the development and lead to a very divergent trajectory. So you can get quite dichotomous outcomes from exactly the same starting genotype. You can see that, for example, in, um, in animals that have mutations that affect formation of the corpus callosum, which is the thick band of fibers that connects the two hemispheres. So there's lines of mice where you know, the chance of that happening, it's sort of, a, it's, it's sort of an all or none event, it, there are some pioneer axons that get across the, the two hemispheres at a very early stage. In order for them to do that, a, a really small bridge of cells has to form. And if it forms, the pioneer axons get across, and then hundreds of thousands of other axons get across. But if it doesn't form at that very early particular stage of development, the pioneers don't get across, nobody gets across. So you have this sort of um, really dichotomous outcome where you have clones mice that are genetically identical and there's a certain probability in one strain that you'll get the corpus callosum to form and it either does or it doesn't and in another strain that probability could be changed by the genetics but there's nothing different genetically about those animals um, you know within each of those strains it's just purely the outcome of development so um, so yeah, because of this self-organizing nature of brain development, that's why the noise can be amplified. It's why it can be such a large source of variation and why it can even explain things potentially like why, you know, one twin getting schizophrenia and the other one not, or one mm -hmm. twin getting autism or the other one not, or one twin being left-handed and the other one being right-handed, or one twin being straight and the other one being gay. You know, th those things all have a heritable component to them. And they also are quite refractory to environmental effects. Like whether you're handedness or sexual orientation, they're really, really innate. Uh, you know, they're not strongly influenced by the environment, yet they're only partly heritable. And I think the explanation is that the rest of the innateness is just the outcome of development, but it's a, it's a chance probabilistic thing, just the way that it plays out. Oh man. It's, 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 it... That that is a, a marvelous platform into which to further complicate how I already understood that yeah. heritability Sorry. worked. <laughs> um, no, that's perfectly okay. It just um, it, I mean, I normally I do a lot more gobbing off on a podcast, but this is a, I don't really have the the mental space to be unpleasant. Um, can you can you think of any uh, what what are the kind of immediate utilities of that for research in sort of the next two to five years? I mean, let's let's say that forms an approachable kind of uh, hypothesis space. Are there yeah. any tasks that present themselves as being able to be more readily addressed under that framework? Um, I think 
for me, I think it's a helpful conceptual framework. Um, mm-hmm. But actually, noise is a pain in the ass, right? I mean, most of the time oh, in yeah. experimental setups, we're doing our very best to get rid of it. We're 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 excluding people. We're, uh, you know, we're averaging across groups, or, you know, and, and and within groups and so on, um, and we're and we're ignoring uh, a lot of that individual variation because it's really really difficult to to work with, especially if it's um, random in, in origin. So for me, it. it doesn't help experimentally, but what it can do is help, I think, conceptually. And so, for example, excuse me, we were talking about intelligence earlier, the genetics of intelligence. Um, one of the ways to think about that is that intelligence is an index of how well your brain is put together, as I said. Now, that in itself can be an index of developmental robustness, which is how um, how good your genome is at encoding an outcome within a certain range. So when I say there's developmental noise, and that's separate from the from the genetic component of variation, I'm going to complicate it further because the amount of developmental noise is itself a heritable trait. Okay. Right? So 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 the genome has evolved to robustly give an, an outcome of a viable human being, right? But genetic variation accumulates because be, actually precisely because the the genome can buffer it so it accumulates but up after a point it starts to degrade the robustness now if you think about intelligence as an index of that partly at least um, then that has some interesting implications and one of them is the idea that actually that may be at least a component of the polygenic risk of neurodevelopmental disorders so what that may be indexing, when you're doing GWAS for schizophrenia or autism or things like that, what people find is that those correlate with the GWAS for intelligence. Uh, and for schizophrenia, it correlates negatively. So um, what that may mean is that intelligence may be an index of developmental robustness, that itself can be indexed by this polygenic score uh, of of. of basically a burden of, of hits on your neurodevelopmental genes that impair how, how well it can uh, function, and as in particular that impair the ability to buffer the effects of another serious insult like a rare mutation. So we know, for example, there's lots of rare mutations that increase the risk of, of say, schizophrenia. Uh, in, they include some things like um, deletions or duplications of various parts of the of chromosomes like say 22q11 or 15q13 these are you know particular bits of particular chromosomes when they're deleted the risk of say psychosis goes up dramatically however not everyone who carries those um, deletions develops psychosis and in fact well many of them will develop other other thing you know intellectual disability or epilepsy or autism or so on but there's even some people who are you know clinically unaffected by those whether they're affected or not may depend on their background, this polygenic background, which may partly manifest as well in intelligence or other other kinds of traits. So, so in a sense, the the idea of developmental robustness, um, well, let's say the idea of developmental variation is where we started this bit, leads to the idea of developmental robustness, which which can vary between people. And then that is an interesting and useful trait and conceptually a way to think about uh, what is intelligence? You know, actually, actually, what is it actually tracking? Mm. Um, 
what is risk of, you know, where does this polygenic sort of genetic background risk of neurodevelopmental disorders come from? And what does that index? My hypothesis is that those two things are indexing the same thing, actually, or at least partly. Um, so now there's some implications for that that are terrible. They're, they're just awful. The worst thing you want to hear uh, is that this is really general, right? So if you're thinking the, the, the GWAS hits for schizophrenia, you know, the hope was that they would center, they'd converge on particular biochemical pathways. And we would be able to say, these are the genes, these are the pathways that lead to this, in the same way that we can say, these are the pathways that lead to multiple sclerosis or, um, you know, inherited deafness or whatever. But, but they're not like that. They don't converge on particular proteins. They're just sort of neurodevelopmental genes broadly or all kinds of genes actually they're they're enriched for neurodevelopmental ones but there's a huge huge range um now what that means unfortunately is it's going to be very difficult to go from gwas results for something like schizophrenia to identify biochemical pathways and then new therapeutic targets which was really the hope mm, yeah i don't think that's going to happen actually um so again, it's a dismal sort of a prospect on that front. I think we have a lot more work to do to get to the biology. Uh, and the, the, the genetics won't reveal it because the genetics is, is less specific than we had hoped. The relationship between those genetic variants and, and the outcome of development is really indirect uh, for the most part, which is, again, oh. a pain. In the ass. Science, science just has this persistent way of being complicated that really gets up my yes. nose, you know? Yeah. Brains, ah. especially. Reality should be under some this. kind of obligation to behave itself. God damn. Yeah. Bloody, Sorry, bloody Dan, nature. You were saying. I, I think this really speaks to this idea that um, we've been at a loss for actually developing new psychiatric treatments. There's, there's been oh, nothing yeah. new. Uh, well, not, nothing essentially new for about forty years. The, the, Absolutely, the, the, the newest thing has been ketamine, but that's not new. That's 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 that's, that's just repurposing um, yes. something that's that, that that's been used for other uses, and it, it's it's almost discouraging in a sense. But the, the, at the same time, the data is the data. We can't just yeah. stick our heads in the sand, going, "Oh no, no, no you know, we we have, we have to keep looking for pathways." But if we keep doing these GWAS, which have more and more people that are that are, that, that, that are being included, samples are, are getting quite big now. I think. The, the largest GWAS, like the, the, the height, I think is hitting a million. Is, is, That's is, right. Yeah. Yeah, a so million people, yeah. For, for, the, for these easy-to-measure phenotypes, we're, we're, getting, we're getting massive GWAS, and they're, they're getting quite big uh, for, uh, for psychiatric illnesses, hitting around sort of the 100,000 mark. Um, the imaging genetics, thanks to things like UK Biobank, is hitting about 60,000 as yes. well, where we can start seeing some interesting things. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it, things aren't boding very well for, for developing new treatments for psychiatry. Well, they don't, they, they don't bode well for jumping straight from genetics to therapeutic targets. But I, I, I think that, that they're useful in other ways. So, first of all, you can make you know, these polygenic scores. Mm -hmm. So, even if you don't get a particularly direct insight into the underlying biology, at least you can use the fact that you have isolated these genetic variants to make a score for different people and say, you know, what's their risk? Yeah. Now, this is a big thing at the moment, and there's a lot of, of development going on, and there's a lot of questions about the statistics and some potential artifacts and so on. But, but clearly, these things have some potential usefulness. Now, 
they have more usefulness if it's, say, uh, a score for heart disease that puts you in a high risk. And then someone can say, well, you know what you can do? You can exercise, you can diet, and we can put you on statins or whatever. Now, the problem is if it's a high risk for something like schizophrenia, but it's only, you know, it's 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 like a, a, a threefold risk. It's not a 50-fold risk or something. Um, what do you do, right? You're not going to give people uh, antipsychotics People are trying that. Yeah, well, they may be. Um, actually, no, I know that they are. I wouldn't. They are, uh, I wouldn't yeah. recommend it because the side effects of these things are are worse than the diseases for for some people. Well, um, but I, I mean, do think can, there is a way. Exactly, cancer is exactly the same there, right? Because I mean, you you, you have you have these um, uh, different uh, polygenic scores and uh, individual mutations where you know that the risks are going up in that really difficult to approach zone. Where you're sort of yeah. three, five, ten times more likely to develop. Uh, I mean, I think there's a, a breast and BRC something. Cancer. BRCA, oh, yeah. I, I can't. I can't remember. But I mean, the the, pro the yeah. problem with that is you can't prophylactically put people on chemotherapy. And sort of no, like prophylactic mastectomy and hysterectomy is just goddamn brutal. So you you have yes, this. Is, yeah. You have this difficult to navigate middle ground of what to do responsibly with the information and uh, do, you, do you give it to someone and let them spend the next years next 30 years shitting themselves over the fact that something terrible might happen to them yeah yeah so you're dead right there's a basically what you get is a statistical kind of an actuarial risk right and and that is derived from a group of people and how well it predicts in individuals is really hard to say. It can predict group outcomes because it's a group statistics. But when people try to apply it to individuals, what you find is that the range of, I mean, people are trying this for intelligence, for example, that the range of scores that someone, uh, IQ scores that someone has or that people have who, who all share the same polygenic score is huge. It's enormous. It's almost the full range uh, that yeah. you see in the normal population. Now, if you look across many, many people, you see the group trend. But the variation at any individual is massive. So they won't be useful, I think, for predicting very accurately. Now, some things you don't have to predict very accurately. You know increased risk, tenfold risk or something is, is actually actionable. Whereas for something like IQ, for it to be actionable, you'd really want to know that the genetic score is better than actually just giving the kid an IQ test, right? Uh, which at present it isn't, and I don't think it ever will be. Partly because... This developmental variation that I was talking about earlier places a firm limit on how precise the out the, the prediction could ever be. Yeah, we could understand everything. We could know every genetic variant that's contributing. We could understand completely how the genetics relates to the phenotype, and still not be able to predict the phenotype with precision because it's only partly heritable, and a lot of the rest of it is is inherent randomness. So I think that the polygenic score space though is interesting um, and I think it will be used more and more I mean you can use you can ask research questions with it so you can say well here's someone who's got a high polygenic score for schizophrenia what other traits do they have that's correlated with that and and what I was just talking about earlier the link with intelligence that came out of that kind of analysis you see a polygenic score that's a high for intelligence is protective against uh, schizophrenia for example and, and the converse is true so i think there's interesting things that can be done there but just to get back to the point about therapeutics and how do we go from genetics 
to um, therapeutics. I think, you know, in cancer, you can do that, well, reasonably directly because cancer is a disease of altered gene expression in a single cell, basically. So if you find the genes that are affected, they're acting. Those are a target in that single cell. And things like psychiatric disorders are not like that. You've got some genes that are mutated over here, you know, in an embryo while it's developing, and they lead to the brain being, you know, wired in a slightly different way, working in a slightly different way. But the effect ultimately is so emergent. It's so, you know, ultimately when you, you think the CIA is reading your emails, it that's not related to the function of any of the proteins that are genes that were mutated, right? There's no, there's no commensurate relationship between those two things at all. It, it's just not the right way to think about it. Um, so you can't make the leap from genetic discoveries to potential therapeutic targets directly. But what you can do is try to make uh, animal models, for example. Now, I love, I, I know that you love talking about things that are done in mice. Uh, and um, so a lot of experiments can be done in mice. And the idea here would be to take some, say, high-risk genes. So things like these deletions or duplications, for example, that we know carry a very high risk of um, psychiatric disorder and make the same mutation in a mouse. People, people have done that. And we're finding many, many more genes like this that are high-risk genes. And then you can say, okay, let me, let me do that for 10 genes or 20 different genes. And they may be all hitting completely different biochemical pathways and having very different effects in the developing brain. But in some way, the developing brain uh, is shifted it's shifted into a trajectory uh, along a self-organizing pathway that's maladaptive. It's a kind of a, uh, in engineering terms, it's a failure mode of, of, a, of a dynamic system, basically. It's like a, um, yeah, right. an attractor. It's an attractor. So you've got this massive dynamic system that's organizing itself, and it's the, the main attractor is normal, healthy, functioning brain, right? That's the typical outcome. But there can be these unusual um attractor states where you can get channeled into them during during development. Now, what we can ask is in a mouse, can we follow that? What are the steps that are happening in a mouse? And what's the emergent state at a neural level? Because once you have a model genetically, you can say, well, okay, I don't know, what, I don't know what's happening. I don't know what to expect behaviorally, but at least I can track the brain development and see where do they end up? Do they end up in a state where when I have mutation in gene A, they end up in that state. And we have a mutation in gene B that does completely something different. The brain may end up being channeled into a similar state. And then you can start to ask, well, what are the events there what in the channeling or in the final state that I can define neurobiologically, right? You've left the genetics behind. The genetics yeah, is right. just an entry point. Now you're doing neuroscience. And now you want to say, well, okay, actually, I can see. I mean, let's take a simple hypothesis that in that psychosis is, on, is, is um, caused by a hyperdopaminergic state. So too, much, too much dopamine, right? It's, it's a traditional hypothesis there. Um, and then you could say, well, actually, I can see which neurons are doing that. And I could tweak that. I can renormalize that circuit by hitting this dopamine receptor. I mean, that's how antipsychotics work. But maybe, you know, maybe there's a GABA receptor that's expressed in just these guys over here. There would be a much neater way to do that without all these horrible side effects. So for me, the while I think the genetics won't let us make a single leap to the therapeutics, I think it's the first step. It's a really great entry point, but there's going to be a load of neuroscience that has to happen after that. Um, 
to ultimately get to an understanding of what is happening in in the brain um, of people with these conditions. Now, the good news is there's some technology that's that's coming along, uh, both in in terms of human imaging, but especially animal imaging and things like optogenetics, um, especially um, the ability to do brain-wide recordings of, of, you know, almost brain-wide, at least at the moment, of, of um, you know, hundreds of thousands of neurons at a time. Incredible. Those are changing, I think, how we can do phenotyping in an animal and how we can relate that to behavioral states. And they allow us to translate much more readily to human data that we get with EEG or fMRI, for example, because, you know, there was always a disconnect. We could do animal experiments and we could poke some neurons in a hippocampal slice or you poke a single neuron. Well, you're not getting data that are that are relatable to the level of data that you get in a, in a human. You've got very micro scale here, very macro scale there. Um, but I think what we can do now in animals is go from level to level to level. So we can follow the effects of a mutation from the cellular level through development to an altered circuit and then see, okay, if this circuit's altered because this synaptic connection is different, well then what is the effect of that on brain-wide system while an animal is behaving or while it's getting into a what we think is a, a, a depressed state or a psychotic state or something like that. Um, so, so I'm really hopeful actually that, that neuroscience is at a moment when it's poised to be able to take advantage of these genetic discoveries that uh, that have been made but but i do think we we can't be naive uh, about how much work that's going to involve it's really going to be well basically we don't know how the brain works so um if we did things would be a lot easier now uh b- b- before we finish up we like to ask our guests some uh, some quick fire questions and we want to ask you kevin uh in-, in regards to your your research what have you changed your mind about in the last few years um well that's good uh, a good question i mean in my own research i guess i've changed my mind about a lot of things um one thing that we did recently was actually looking at polygenic scores for schizophrenia so we had a sample where we could do do that. We could do a, a GWAS, get a polygenic score. Um, what we hoped to do was look at the genes that were contributing to that and try and tease out different biochemical pathways in the hope that we could make the polygenic score better by concentrating on just you know the genes that were, say, neurodevelopmental genes or that were linked to genes where big mutations cause a high risk of psychosis. So there were some biochemical sets that we had, data sets we could use that to kind of try to refine the polygenic score. Um, And we just published a paper on this recently, and and the upshot was that we could improve it a little bit. Uh, We could find that some sets of genes contribute more to the polygenic score than others. But ultimately, I have to say, it's just not enough. It's not going to change things. It, It really is still very, very polygenic and not so specific. You get a little bit more enrichment for some pathways than others. It's not actually going to change our view of the biology as being very, very general, polygenic, almost omnigenic as the new <laughs> term is. So so that's one thing where we you know we started our, our we started our experiments with a view that we could get a, a really positive outcome. Um, there and the data um, you know showed it was a, a small improvement, uh, certainly not what we had what we had hoped for. There is another one which it was not from my own research, but was from researching the book, actually thinking about um, personality traits. 
And personality traits are interesting in that um, there's a whole sort of science around how we define these things and what people think about them. There's lots of different models. But one of the typical models would be that if you look at a bunch of different behaviors, say um, things like sensation seeking and sociability and playfulness and assertiveness, and you measure people on all those things, then what you'll find is that they're all slightly correlated with each other. People who are more playful may also be tend to be more assertive, more sociable and everything. And people have inferred that there is therefore a latent factor underlying that, which is called extroversion, which uh, contributes to each of those things. So the idea is that that somewhere in the brain, something's doing extroversion, something some some variation affects that, and then that feeds into these these things that we see. Now when I was thinking about that more, I eventually came to the conclusion that actually you should flip that. That that extra and that this is not my only it's not only my conclusion, lots of people think this, that extroversion actually doesn't the, the, the fact that there are correlations between those things doesn't mean that there's a single underlying thing explaining all of those correlations. It's a statistical construct. We can use it. We it, you know it's 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 a trait. You can measure it. It's fairly reliable, fairly robust, but that doesn't mean it's a thing in the brain. And actually, when you look in the brain for correlates of extroversion or neuroticism or conscientiousness, you don't find them. I mean, people have looked for all kinds of neural correlates and they don't find them because I think they don't exist. Um, and I think what does exist is variation in things that are much more basal that affect decision-making. Because actually... Um, Personality is basically just patterns of decision-making. In any given scenario, you tend to do this. Uh, Jim tends to do that. I tend to do this. Um, and so if you think about things like risk aversion or reward sensitivity or novelty salience or delay discounting or confidence threshold, all of those things that are basal decision-making parameters, then there are things in the brain that do those. And you can you know, there's some great work in mice these days that tweaking those circuits so you can make a mouse make a decision when it, ha- you know, you can influence how confident it is, how much evidence oh. it has to have before it makes a decision, or how it weights long term versus short term goals, or how it responds to rewards and so on. So those things can be tweaked. Um, and so in terms of personality, what I think is that the, you know, the, the genetics affects those things. Those are real things in the brain that then manifests as differences in these behaviors. And then we label them with these statistical constructs on top of that that are, that are useful, but they're, uh, they're not natural kinds necessarily. They're not, they're not things unto themselves. They're descriptors of other things. Um, and I think that, that, that for me, um, I had struggled to write that chapter when I was talking about the genetics of personality because I didn't feel like I really could get a good handle on it. But once I flipped it like that, then I was much more happy with it. Now, that's all speculative and it may turn out to be not right. uh, But for me, it's a framework that I find more satisfying and a bit more coherent. And it links much better to the, the animal work. And, and so it, there's some, some experimental um, footholds that you can get with that kind of approach, whereas you, you can't study extroversion in a mouse, right? You, you certainly can't study conscientiousness, <laughs> but you can study old. delay discounting, you know? So you can study the, the basal things that feed into those. 
can, can we can we get I mean that specific example that you just gave? Can we get that reference off you and, and stick that in the show notes? The the, the um, mice having aggregated information for decision making yeah, sure. bases. Yeah, put that in there. Absolutely, that might yep. be that might be worth a look. Oh, there's some great stuff. So uh, some of this stuff was done by Zach Manen at uh, the Champala Mode in, in Lisbon. Uh, he's done some really nice stuff on that. Adam Kepet at um, Cold Spring Harbor has done some really nice work along these lines as well. I mean, it's actually amazing how sophisticated some of the cognitive science is now in rodents. Mice and rats can do very sophisticated cognitive operations. And if you set up the, uh, you know your behavioral assay in a sophisticated enough way, then you can tweak these circuits and learn something because you've you your experimental setup is designed to test like i said how confident the animal is how much evidence it has to accumulate how much it waits a long term versus short term goal so there's some absolutely beautiful work um going on there i'll send you some references Don't, we'll put thank that in, you. in the in the show notes and uh, and secondly what's a a book or a paper that you would recommend that everyone should read uh, well, innate, of course. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> three, three, three lucky n- listeners will get the, get the yeah, opportunity yeah. to do it for free. Um, so there's there's a lot of books that I um, have been influenced by. I think one of the ones that's relevant to what we've been talking about is by Andreas Wagner. It's called Robustness and Evolvability in Living Systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and that had a lot of influence on my thinking. Um, it harkens back to some work by Conrad Waddington, who um, there's a great book called The Strategy of the Genes, um, and he he had a lot of the same the same ideas about developmental trajectories um, in the you know 40s and 50s, but um, his work was sort of uh, I guess overlooked um, for a while. But um, I think it's coming back into play because both of those things, both of those books, approach biological systems as systems. Right, they're not trying to reduce things to pathways or individual proteins or individual genes or cells or circuits. It's very much a systems approach. Um, and for me, systems biology, broadly speaking, is coming back into vogue. And even the theory behind it and the philosophy underpinning it is coming back into vogue. And interestingly, I think that's because of the technology. Mm. It's because we now can measure loads and loads of things at once. So. When, for example, you could only poke a few neurons in a brain at a, at a given time, well, systems theory wasn't going to help you. But now you can look at whole brain states of activity. Now you can talk about attractor states and uh, dynamical systems and you know all the cybernetics and all that kind of stuff. That's suddenly useful again, theoretically speaking, because we have the technology to, to allow us to, to, to implement that way of thinking. So, um, so I think there's going to be a resurgence of interest in those sorts of approaches. And actually, um, Cybernetics by um, Wiener is another one along the same lines. Um, that is, a, it's, I like those ones that are a different way of thinking. So, you know, lots of books out there have lots of facts and you can learn A, B, and C, right? I, I want to think about something in a, in a different way. And each of those books certainly, certainly did that for me. We will uh, link to those books in the show notes. Well, Kevin, thanks for uh, joining us on the show. Yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure, guys.